What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. On today's show, I'll be in conversation with law professor and civil rights lawyer Dan Cannon about his new book, Pleading Out, How Plea Bargaining Creates a Permanent Criminal Class. You mean to tell me that a prosecutor can literally threaten a defendant with death, actual physical death, if they don't take a plea bargain? Well, yes. That's what we've decided we're going to do. That's the kind of power that we've decided we're going to give to prosecutors. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest today is Dan Cannon, a civil rights lawyer and a law professor at the University of Louisville in Kentucky. In his practice, he has served as counsel for plaintiffs in the U.S. Supreme Court case Orbridgefell versus Hodges, which brought marriage equality to all 50 states. He joins us today to talk about his new book, Pleading Out, How Plea Bargaining Creates a Permanent Criminal Class. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dan. Hi, Kat. Thanks for having me on. Um, I wanted to start with straight definition. What is a plea deal and what are the two different types? Sure. Uh, when we talk about plea bargains, there's two basic ways that um, a prosecutor can bargain with a defendant to get them to uh, plead guilty to something. And one is by using what we call sentence bargaining, uh, which is essentially a, a making deals over how much time um, in prison someone's going to send or what their penalty is going to be. And then the other way is charge bargaining. And that is um, if if the whatever they've been charged with um, is for some reason not to the prosecutor's liking or not to the defendant's liking, then they can they can haggle over what those charges are um, to either uh, uh, turn up the heat on the defendant um, or to make it more attractive to the defendant, so they would uh, they they will take a deal ultimately. And what's what's unique about I'm sorry, what's unique about um, the American system and why our rate of plea bargaining is so much higher than any place else in the world is that we allow for all kinds of sentence and charge bargaining to occur. So we've decided in the United States that we're going to give prosecutors every kind of carrot and every kind of stick that you could possibly imagine in order to press defendants into um, a, 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 an offer they can't refuse, essentially. And I mean, I think a lot of folks, both inside and outside, right, of the criminal justice system, frame this or think about this as a good thing that it, it potentially reduces the amount of time that a person could spend incarcerated. You talk about in your introduction at one time, you also thought that this was sort of an okay thing. Um, can you talk about that and then also go into what changed your mind? Sure. I think as law students, we are taught, um, and, and this is fed to the general public too, I think, that. If we did not have a system that was premised almost entirely on plea bargaining, like ours is now, um, that the system would crash somehow, that we're just not going to have a criminal justice system anymore, because if we had to, you know, do the kind of fact finding that we think of um, that comes along with jury trials, um, that we just don't have time to do that. There's simply too much crime and too many criminals uh, in America to, to, to be able to do that. We have to have a system to cram lots and lots of convictions through very quickly. Um, and you know, that becomes sort of a, a, a chicken or egg kind of question. I think what, what interested me was starting to look at that equation the other way around, like, well, maybe 
it's it's the practice of plea bargaining, which we do again at a much higher rate than any place else in the world. Maybe that's driving the number of convictions that we have. You know, so if you look at you know, if you look at any other common law country, the, the kinds of countries that have similar legal systems to ours, like Canada, uh, the United Kingdom, places like that, none of those systems gets over 80% uh, of, of a plea bargain rate. In other words, you know, they, they, um, they don't plead out more than 80% of their cases. And we're at 97%. Uh, and 80% is an extreme outlier. So you look at that and you say, well, what's going on here? Look, look at our criminal justice outcomes. Um, you know, we lock up more people than any place else in the world. We arrest more people. We put people away for longer. We have dreadful criminal justice outcomes. I mean, even hardened law and order conservatives sort of recognize that now. And so what is it that we're doing differently from every place else in the world. And, and there's, there's a lot of things, but one major culprit is the plea bargain. We simply could not convict as many people as we do without a method for doing it quickly. And we've decided that expedience uh, is going to be the number one principle that drives our criminal justice system. And in fact, it, it, it may not be that there's too much crime or too many criminals, but essentially we are creating, and I believe this is what you're arguing in your book, right? Through this plea bargaining system and other defects inside of our criminal justice system, we are essentially creating criminals and thus a, a, a permanent criminal class. That's right. And you, you can't create the number of criminals that we have, you know, quote unquote criminals that we have in the United States without a mechanism for doing so quickly. Right now, uh, one third of all the adults in, in America has an arrest record or a conviction record. If you look at our arrest rates compared to the UK, compared to Canada, I think in Canada, it's uh, you know, 600 out of every 100,000 people uh, is arrested. In uh, the UK, it's 1,400. Here, it's 3,000. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it, we have a much higher arrest rate here in the United States. And that's after 200 years of plea bargaining. You have to stand back at a statistic like that, compare it to our common law neighbors and say, well, you know, what's going on here? I think you, you, you get to one of two conclusions. One is that we simply are, are more likely to be criminals in the United States, right? Because of, I don't know, violent video games or all the guns or too much sex on TV or what have you. Um, or there's a mechanism at play in our institutions that artificially creates all these criminals, right? And, and obviously my, my uh, premise of, in, in the book is that it's the latter. Right. And, and I want to get to that in, through sort of the, the tracing the history, right, of, of how creating a criminal class has benefited the elite or the ruling class. But I do want to go back because you've, you've said this, this term a couple times, um, common law. What does it mean to, that, that that's our, our, our legal system, com to be a common law country? Please define for my listeners. Sure. Um, there's, there's two basic kinds of legal systems that are used throughout most of the world. And one is what we call a civil law system, and the other is uh, the common law system. The common law uh, system is what we inherited from England um, forever ago, right? It's essentially, you know, uh, originates in, in, in the 12th century. And um, that is that is the legacy that we've uh, that we've sort of inherited from England. Um, it's the same sort of system that is in place in Australia, in Canada, in India, and other former British colonies. Um, and the thing about that system 
is that you know it prides itself on its sameness. You know, your listeners may have heard the term stare decisis. It means we're going to do things the way that we were always doing them before, and and that's that's a badge of honor for this system. Uh, but the problem with that is that all the racist and classist stuff, the mechanisms that we used uh, purposely for race and class divisions, you know, openly and overtly in the 19th century and before, um, are, are many of them are still in use today. And part of what I argue in the book is that the plea bargain is one of them. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Cap Brooks, in conversation with civil rights attorney Dan Cannon about his book, Pleading Out, How Plea Bargaining Creates a Permanent Criminal Class. Um, all right, Dan. I want to I want to go back in in time a bit, um, and I'm, you you start your book uh, with a bit on how we got here, um, it, and something that that I actually found fascinating was that you know in the early days, meaning Britain's days, <laughs> folks were dissuaded from from pleading guilty or avoiding a trial. Yes, what changed? Yeah, well, uh, you know, in fact, in in the in the early days of this country, um, it was almost unheard of. For someone to plead guilty to a serious crime. We're not even talking about plea bargaining because, you know, again, there's a difference between just simply pleading guilty and taking your lumps and working out a deal with a prosecutor, right? And working out a deal to, uh, to, to, you know, for, for your sentence or for the charges that you ultimately end up with, right? Um, plea bargaining in this country. So, the, I mean, plea bargaining, pleading guilty was taboo. Uh, plea bargaining was, was, totally off the table. It was, in fact, a criminal offense. And you can read some early stories in New England about prosecutors who cut deals with defendants, who try to cut deals with defendants, and they get prosecuted for it. So it was something that simply wasn't done um, until around the 1830s. Now, not coincidentally, that's around the same time that the courts were actively involved in trying to break the back of organized labor in New England. Right. So if we look at when when uh, plea bargaining started, we can trace it back to uh, the 1830s in Boston. And, and, and then that spreads to the rest of Massachusetts and spreads to the rest of New England. Well, at that time, prosecutors are using conspiracy statutes or what have you to prosecute workers who are trying to take collective action. Um, the working classes were getting big at that point. Right? And so you have a real ramping up of the labor movement in the 1830s in New England, as you have all these workers living on top of each other and forming communities and talking to one another in, in this you know, concentrated post-industrial revolution environment. And they're getting class conscious. Um, and at the same time, you have work because of universal white male suffrage, which was, was pretty much everywhere in the United States at that time. Um, but that was kind of a new thing. So you have working class people sitting on criminal juries, working class men, white men sitting on criminal juries, which was a new thing. Um, and, and those people are often quite sympathetic to workers who are being treated badly by their bosses. So it, it, was, it, was, it became very risky for, for the uh, ruling classes at that time to just keep pounding away at the labor movement with criminal laws. Uh, the labor movement was just too big and they would have lost legitimacy. Um, so you see two things happen during that period of time. And, and one is the courts start taking power or the legislatures and the courts start taking power away from juries. Right. Um, so, you know, at, at that time, juries were enormously powerful. Uh, when we think about what a jury's role is today. 
juries just decide questions of fact. So if it's a quite, you know, if it's the case is about whether somebody ran a red light, uh, the jury decides the fact of whether that person ran the red light. Well, back in those days, juries were more powerful than that. They could decide what the law was. So to use that example, it's a terrible example for the 19th century, but, but going with that example, it, it, the jury would say whether or not it should be illegal to run the red light in the first place. So juries were enormously powerful. Um, and what you see is, is, is um, the elites in New England taking that power away uh, by statute and by court opinion. So, you know, they made the juries weaker um, and then they still needed ways to break up working class solidarity. So they switched to a strategy of criminalizing all the behaviors of the individual workers in, in, instead. So you have, you have juries with less power um, and you have this institution of the plea bargain. So you bring in individual workers one at a time. You have them plead to something that there's no risk of having these cases go in front of a jury. And they're prosecuting these workers under these gigantically broad statutes like drunk and disorderly or vagrancy or something like that. And so by prosecuting a critical mass of workers, you've got a situation where the ruling class can, can bring those workers under the control of the state and watch them to a degree. And then also you're attaching the stigma of the criminal label to them. Um, and that, you know, that's, that's an ancient uh, stigma, right? That's, 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 everybody knows there's been a, there's been a criminal class in every human civilization since, you know, the dawn of humanity. And we know that, you know, that, that's, those are, those are people that you avoid. Those are people that you alienate from larger society, right? And so, Slapping so many people with that criminal label helped alienate them from their communities and disrupted working class solidarity, which was, you know, the, the goal to uh, all along. And the plea bargain was a way that they accomplished all that quickly and quietly. You are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with civil rights attorney Dan Cannon about his book, Pleading Out, How Plea Bargaining Creates a Permanent uh, Criminal Class. Dan Cannon, lots of many Americans base their ideas about what happens in our so-called justice system on, on what they see on TV, right? Um, some of us refer to that as copaganda, <laughs> uh, including the idea that um, most folks charged with a crime go through this process of a trial with a jury of their peers. Um, but but you, I, I think even me, actually, until I read this sentence in your book that says that, that trials actually are almost extinct, um, and instead days in, in courthouses are filled with... Um, "Quote unquote rocket dockets or uh, plea blitzes," I believe is what you, you call them in the book. Talk talk about the prevalency of plea deals and and what a, a day in court for folks actually looks like. Yeah, uh, I mean, essentially, it is nothing like what you see on you know sort of docudramas about the legal system or 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 law and order or that sort of thing. And I think that the conception of the general public. Um, it is the sort of like, all right, the, the criminal justice system is driven by the jury trial because that's what we see on television. And otherwise, we don't really ever see the inside of the courtroom. Over the last 200 years, and this is part of what I argue is so damaging about plea bargaining, over the last 200 years, we've essentially removed the public entirely from the process of criminal justice, right? So think about, you know, we go back to Massachusetts and um, 1830, there was no plea bargaining. By 1850, more than 50% of the criminal cases in Massachusetts ended in a plea bargain. And by the 1880s, 
you have more than 80%, almost 90% of criminal cases ending in a plea bargain. And, and so what that means, and this, you know, of course, spread like wildfire to the other states. Um, and by the turn of the 20th century, you know, you have a situation where, where the plea bargain is essentially dead. And then once we get into the era, uh, the real era of expedience, which is prohibition and then the drug wars, you know, the, the, the jury trial continues to die and continues to die and continues to die. And in fact, there are, there are fewer and fewer jury trials even now every year. So the effect of that has been that we've removed the public entirely from the system of criminal justice and we've never really tried to use citizen juries. Like, you know, our criminal legal system has never been uh, presided over by juries of a defendant's peers. Think about what that means. You know, go back to Massachusetts. Uh, in the 1880s, the jury trial is essentially dead. Well, Massachusetts didn't even let women serve on juries until 1950, right? So, you know, the few jury trials that there were, it was still only, you know, basically only white men um, until until the 1950s. Of course, you still have the systematic exclusion of people of color um, from juries. You know, the Supreme Court of the United States didn't even say that that was not okay to do until 1986 in a case called Batson. You know, so this this idea that we have about the, the jury, the, uh, a citizen jury, a jury of someone's peers, being the cornerstone of our criminal justice system is simply false, and it's been false for a very long time. You know, you think about, there's a study out of Texas that I, I talk about in the book, where they look at um, who even shows up for jury duty in the first place, right? And again, we only have, we're only, this is only two to three percent of all cases that go to trial to begin with. Who shows up for jury service on those cases? Well, only about 20% of the people who are even called to jury duty show up in the first place in metropolitan areas. And then from that 20%, you know, the lawyers uh, during the voir dire process, there's so few trials that they can be very selective about this. And so it's the same kind of people that end up on the juries over and over again. And those are upper middle class white people, people that can afford to be there, you know, for days at a time. Um, and, and, you know, don't have some reason to get out of it, financial or otherwise. Uh, so, so, you know, that is nothing like having a jury of one's peers, um, even in the rare event that a jury trial happens. Most of this stuff is just administered like a bureaucracy. Somebody pleads guilty every two seconds to something in the United States. So it's just a mill, basically. It's a conviction mill where the overriding principle is expediency and we're trying to cram as many convictions through as possible and make as many criminals as possible. I want to talk a little bit more about the dangers of the removal of the public or public eyes, right? So a, 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 a justice system that relies on plea deals um, that, that happens basically in the dark, right? And so then as a result, you don't see uh, bad behaviors on the part of law enforcement, right? The cops don't have to defend uh, whether or not they arrested someone just because they were black or that arrest was you know, a result of racial profiling to begin with or attorneys that may or may not be adequately representing their clients. Like it, it just allows for all sorts of horrific things to happen in the process, yes? Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, some of this stuff, you know, that happens is is we don't really even see right um there's a piece in the book 
Uh, I mean, certainly the discretionary aspects of, of the system are bad. Like all this discretion in how the law is administered essentially makes for no law at all. So if you have police officers that are able to go out and make an arrest, and there's 11 million arrests in the United States every year, and the police officers that make those arrests know that they're very likely to end in convictions because everything does, right? You know, like the prosecutors have been given this power to use any carrot and any stick, as I said. And so they know that once they charge something ends up on a prosecutor's desk, it's very likely that it's going to end in a plea deal of some kind because the prosecutor is going to be able to leverage their, you know, awesome power to, to get a conviction to happen, to get some kind of plea to happen. And that means police officers are never held accountable for anything that they do ever. They know that they're never going to have to testify. Uh, they know that they're never going to be put under a microscope. They know that they're never going to be you know, really tested in any kind of meaningful way. So they show up and they lie about the evidence and they show up and they uh, you know, don't have any evidence at all. And, and, you know, they're still not held accountable in those situations because, again, expedience is the number one principle that guides everything. And there's really no time for that kind of accountability. Right. So if you have a racist cop, um, it's very easy for that that cop to do racist things and get away with it. Let's say you have a cop that says, so I'm just only going to I'm only going to arrest black people and that's all I'm ever going to do. You know, who how how is that how is that police officer held accountable? How does that accountability ever happen? You know, because most of the time when you make those arrests, if you've just decided I'm going to arrest only black people, you make those arrests and we've given them this kind of discretion. Well, it's, it's going to end up in a conviction and no one will ever test it. Um, same goes for prosecutors. They had this enormously wide uh, latitude in the, the cases they, they choose to charge and how they choose to charge them and how harshly they want to punish certain people. And so if you have a racist prosecutor, you have a racist justice system. Um, but but what's somewhat more chilling is in removing the community from this process entirely. You basically have two sets of people. You have people who know the system inside and out and are in it, you know, frequently, if not every day. And they understand that this is just how things work. Right. You show up and you get the best deal you can. And you move on and you go on to the next case and you get as many of them off your desk as you possibly can. And then there's this whole other sector, most people that just don't know anything about anything, you know, to do with the criminal legal system. And, um, you know, I talk in the book about this thing called the participation theory of democracy, where if you have people, um, if you have, if you have a, 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 a civic activity, uh, that involves a little bit of deliberation, that involves, you know, a little bit of participation in your democracy and thinking about stuff, well, then you're going to care a little bit more about your society. You're going to care a little bit more about, you know, uh, the stability of your democracy and being a good citizen and all that stuff. So if you go and vote every now and then, you, you look at look at the ballot and you say, well, I like that name. That one sounds good. I like that person. I'm just going to check that off. And maybe you do a little research on the candidates and that kind of thing. And so that makes you that you've participated in a, a little bit of a deliberative process. And so that makes you care a little bit more about your community. And if you participate in a process that causes you to deliberate a lot about your community, about democracy, about you know, all the stuff that, that we do in public life, um, then that's that's going to make you care a lot more. Well, the number one deliberative activity that you can possibly do as a citizen. And in fact, where you are the most powerful as a citizen 
is sitting on a jury, right? And, and that's where you do the most deliberation. That's where you're likely to come away with, you know, caring more about your community after the whole process. And we've taken that process away almost entirely from people. There's just very, very few people that ever sit on juries. And as I've said before, it's the same kind of people every single time. I want to talk about something else that, that I, I, you know, that, that is helping to funnel people into this process. And, and we talked about, you know, plea blitzes or how fast it happens the day of, but actually getting to your day in court can be incredibly slow, right? So meaning that people that have been charged, not convicted, but charged with a crime can spend months, years languishing in violent jails that by the time it comes to plea deal time, they just want to go home. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And a lot of that has to do with the cash bail system, which I'm sure you've addressed on this show extensively. Um, you know, it, it, it all goes back to this idea that a prosecutor sort of holds all the cards in these situations, right? Um, the, and, and, and for our purposes, we'll just say that the state holds our, all the cards. Um, so if they want to keep you locked up until you, you plead guilty to something, they'll figure out a way to do that, right? Um, and it's this all sort of in the name of, of, of getting a conviction at any cost. So we say, when we say the, that expediency is the driving principle, um, what that really means is, is that, you know, we don't want there to be any kind of fact-finding function in the criminal justice system. Like that has been completely taken out of the mix um, in favor of uh, it's just quick convictions, convictions obtained as quickly as possible. Now that can, that can go very, very slowly for someone who is locked up, obviously. Right. Um, so, you know, a person might be locked up for six months and only ever get six minutes to talk to, you know, a public defender or something like that. And by the time they're at the end of that six months, they're like, wow, I don't see any end to this anytime. So I guess I'll just plead to whatever, uh, you know, what, whatever the best deal is that I can possibly get, even though I'm, I'm innocent. Um, and we've decided that we're going to give the state that kind of power to keep somebody locked up indefinitely, to um, threaten them with higher charges, to threaten them with more time, uh, to threaten them with death in some cases. You know, and I tell this to lay people and, and people think I'm joking. Like, you, you, you mean to tell me that a prosecutor can literally threaten a defendant with death, actual physical death, if they don't take a plea bargain? Well, yes, that's what we've decided we're going to do. That's the kind of power that we've decided we're going to give to prosecutors. And in fact, since uh, the 1970s, one of the studies that I cite in the books is you know, 75% of the people who um, are on death row now could have avoided the death penalty uh, by taking the plea offer that the prosecution gave. In other words, the, the death penalty never would have been put on the table, but since they insisted on their right to trial, um, that's what provoked the prosecutor to put the death penalty on the table and how they ended up getting a death sentence in the first place. That's an enormous power that we've given prosecutors, and, uh, and, and it's something that doesn't happen in any other common law country. I want to talk about the power of prosecutors and also some of the other actors inside of the criminal justice system uh, in a, a little bit of a different light around uh, prosecutors. One of, one of the conversations that that hit the scene when the term, air quotes, progressive prosecutor, I really struggle with that term, uh, <laughs> uh, came about um, was in within the context of decarceration, right, and the movement to decarcerate and how to reduce our prison population. And um, that, that, that also 
lies in the power of prosecutors, right? They, they, just as they are the drivers that explode our prison industrial complex, they have the power to be the solution to it, right? They can do diversion. They can stop doing plea deals. They can, there's all sorts of things that they, they could do, right? Like this is, this is really a critical role if we are going to see a shift in how America does public safety, again, air quotes. That's absolutely right. And, and I think that, you know, um, the sustainability of a, of, of a solution offered by an elected prosecutor is another question, right? You know, because it could be that the reforms put in place are only as good as a prosecutor's term, right? And then you get somebody new in and you've got, you know, the whole problems all over again, which is what we've seen throughout American history, which is part of why I argue in the book that, you know, uh, the defendants themselves, that the, the public itself has to take the reins on this and 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 come up with collective action uh, to, to slow the rate of plea bargaining in a particular community. But if you look at prosecute, you know, if you look at, 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 at um, American history, um, the few times that jurisdictions, discrete places have experimented with reducing plea bargaining. Um, it has had system-wide effects that I would argue are largely positive. So you look at Alaska, there was an attorney general that came, uh, that was, that, that came into power in Alaska in the 1970s uh, named Avram Gross. And what he did was, as soon as he got into office, he said, well, all right, we're going to stop doing plea deals. And you know, of course, everybody is freaking out. The prosecutors are freaking out. The public defenders are freaking out. Like, how are we going to do this? This is going to crash the whole system. It's going to make everything terrible. But actually what happened was the number of trials did go up. It went way up. Um, and certainly uh, these lawyers had more work to do. But also what happened was the number of cases that were rejected by the prosecutor that were not prosecuted in the first place, the cases that were dismissed, Right, that number changed dramatically. So, the the Alaskan prosecutors were were uh, rejecting about four uh, percent of the cases that police brought to them before uh, Attorney General Gross took office. And then when he gets in and says no more plea bargains, well, then they reject about forty percent. It jumped to forty percent of the cases. Uh, that they had to reject because they had to get smarter about what they were prosecuting. We can't just prosecute the petty stuff anymore. We have to do the big things. We have to make priorities. And we can't just take whatever the police are feeding us, right? Um, and, and, and that creates some tension between police and prosecutors at first. But what it does is it causes the police over time to be a lot more careful about uh, who they arrest, what they charge, what the charges are, you know, what their evidence is, um, and it makes them it makes them better police. And you have interviews with police from that time period that say, yeah, you know, actually we hated this at first because they were rejecting all of our cases, but then we realized that you know it's making us into into better investigators and better officers, and it's better for the system overall. So even just you know a, a mild reduction in the number of plea bargain cases, um, some mild restrictions on plea bargaining. Uh, can work wonders on the system overall. I think it's a. I think the the question of police accountability is ultimately a, a separate issue, right? Um, and what you need for that is local officials who are willing to hold police accountable, and you just simply don't see that. You know, um, I just did an interview this morning on the Breonna Taylor prosecutions. This is the first real move 
by the federal government over the last few months to establish any kind of accountability for bad actions by police that I've seen in my lifetime. So you have the prosecutions of Tao and Kung in, um, uh, in Minneapolis over George Floyd's death. And now you've got the prosecutions of these, these four officers um, in, in Louisville. And I mean, that is a trend that is going the right way, but, but we're coming off of decades of courts saying that it is perfectly fine for police officers to lie on search warrants, uh, for police officers to kill everybody in the house, you know, if they're being fired upon for any reason, um, and, you know, just all kinds of bad behavior, sanctioning all kinds of bad behaviors by police officers. Um, So I I hope that we are emerging from that swamp now, Um, but it really takes institutions that that are willing to hold police accountable. And I think that that is a whole separate issue from um, how much plea bargaining occurs in a, in a particular area. Dan Cannon, what about public defenders? We have amazing PDs in the Bay Area. I want to shout out Brendan Woods in Alameda County and Manaraju in San Francisco, um, who I know, you know, them and their teams, they work so hard every single day to, 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 you know, wrench our people out of the clutches of yeah. the carceral state. Where, where do they sit in this dynamic? They, they don't have a lot of power, I'm sorry to say. Um, you know, uh, and there are amazing public defenders everywhere. And I've gotten, you know, since, I, since the book came out, I've gotten a lot of questions for public defenders of what's our role here and how do we do this? Um, and I, I just don't think, you know, in terms of... of the hierarchy of people who can make a difference in this system, I think uh, public defenders are unfortunately near the bottom. You know, I think if I am the public defender in an area, the best I can probably try to do is um, to to set targets of trying more cases. Let's try, you know, let's let's try to up our number of trials by 10% or 20%, right? Um, and I think that's probably a good thing to shoot for, but ultimately you're at the mercy of your client and you have to do what's best for your client. And, you know, if the client wants to take whatever plea deal the, the prosecution has made, if the prosecution is making a deal that they truly can't refuse, I mean, you have to do what's best for your client in that situation, which is what makes this part of what makes this such an intractable problem, right? Um, if, uh, if you have a public defender, you know, public defender can look at system wide problems, but ultimately, has to do what's best for their their clients. So I think you have to think of this with with two minds. One is, you know, how do we make system wide change, and and two is, you know, how do I act um, for in, in the best interests of my individual client? And it's a tricky box to be in. Um, this problem is much better solved by legislatures who are unlikely to do anything about it. Um, to to a lesser extent by judges who are also unlikely to do anything about it. Uh, by elected prosecutors who might be willing to do something, but again, you know whether or not that change is sustainable, it, it may only last as long as that prosecutor is in office. And we've seen a sort of ebb and flow in, in different jurisdictions, like New Orleans, for example, or in Alaska, you know, where where they would just go right back to the old plea bargaining ways uh, once that particular elected prosecutor is gone. I really think the power to change this uh, situation is in the hands of 
citizens. It is in the hands of the of people who ultimately have to decide whether or not they are going to go to trial in their case um, or not. And so part of my aim with this book was to start a conversation to denormalize the practice of plea bargaining because once you get swept into that system, everybody just sort of expects, well, this is what you're going to do. You're going to take a plea and it's going to be, you're going to just try to get the best deal you can and go on. Um, and I think to, to, to the extent that we can say that, hey, that's not a normal way to do a system. Um, th this is not a good way to structure a criminal justice system. And you should think twice about it before you just take whatever the prosecution is, is has got on the table. Um, uh, that's probably the best outcome we can hope for. You actually segued right to where I wanted to end um, our conversation with. The tagline of this show is expose, agitate, build, right? So how do we get from where we are to where we actually want to be? Um, and, you know, you talk about that, that yeah, it's, it's going to take grassroots organizing and the people. Um, it's on us uh, to push for these shifts. What types of organizing is happening to address us across the country, if any, is part one of the question. And then second um, is what role does abolition or do abolitionists have to play in ending or severely curbing this practice? Yeah. So so as yet, I don't know of any popular movements to to reduce plea bargain to increase the number of trials, okay? I would love to see that happen. Um, and I think it can happen if you look at what's going on in criminal justice organizing overall um, throughout the entire country. So in, at the end of the book, I've got interviews with criminal justice organizers who have been very successful at shifting public opinion on um, discrete topics within the legal system, right? You know, the rights of uh, convicted criminals to be able to vote or the restoration of civil rights, um, for example, or uh, the unanimous juries, uh, that issue in, in the case of Louisiana, um, and then just uh, 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 shutting down of prisons in Wisconsin. Um, there are, are activists that are out there that are doing this work that have, um, that have figured out um, how to speak to the public about these kinds of issues and how to build broad coalitions of conservatives, of progressives, of socialists, of Republicans, of the whole nine yards, uh, churches and so on, and, and to get everybody on board with um, common sense type solutions. I think it could be done uh, with plea bargaining. I don't know that it's, that it's, um, that it is happening as yet. Um, as far as the abolitionist role. I think that, you know, for abolitionists, it's, it's the same sort of thing. You don't really have any other choice. I think top-down solutions for abolitionists and for people who, who just want discrete changes within the criminal justice system are, tend to be a dead end, right? You know, even where you have progressive legislatures. Now, I'm in a deep red state, right? I'm, I'm, I'm in Indiana and I work in Kentucky. And so we know we're not going to have a whole lot of traction with the legislatures here on criminal justice issues. But even in places like California, where you have, you know, legislatures that are are um, are willing to talk about these things and willing to act on these things, you still have enormous and burgeoning um, prison populations, right? Um, so, I mean, I think that demonstrates that these top-down solutions simply are not going to work. Like going through the legislatures, going through judges, going through the executive branch, not going to work. You've got to build power on the ground. And I think that starts by um, shifting public opinion 
and you know just sort of grassroots organizing and door knocking and social media campaigns and the whole nine yards you, you mentioned you know the the outcome you know of, of reducing plea deals increasing the number of trials being uh, a wanted outcome but and, and i guess i just want to add on to that right as, as a means to also decrease the number of arrests reduce the criminal class yes. and decentivize police from arresting our people you know every whip stitch left right and center Absolutely. And it's important, too, that, you know, I'm not arguing for the end of plea bargaining altogether. And I'm certainly not arguing for you know, people not to be able to plead guilty to things because some, there, you know, there are going to be many situations in which that makes sense. What doesn't make sense is that we do it at a rate of 97 percent, right? <laughs> like that 90 percent, 7 percent of all of our cases should end in a, a, a bargained agreement. That's not normal, and we need to denormalize it. Um, you know, because what what ultimately has happened is that we've got a system built for speed and not for any sort of truth finding. You've been listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Cap Brooks. Our guest today has been Dan Cannon, a civil rights lawyer and law professor at the University of Louisville in Kentucky. In his practice, he has served as counsel for plaintiffs in the U.S. Supreme Court case. Obergefell versus Hodges, which brought marriage equality to all 50 states. He joined us today to talk about his new book, Pleading Out, How Plea Bargaining Creates a Permanent Criminal Class. Dan Cannon, if folks want to find you on the socials, where should they go? Sure. I'm at Dan Cannon, and that's Cannon with one N, like the camera, D-A-N-C-A-N-O-N, on um, just about everything. This has been an awesome conversation. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>